Welcome to Veterans Connected, where maintenance and reliability expert and military veteran Eric Bevavino connects with fellow veterans in industry during each episode, where they exchange their experiences and discuss the transition from the military to industry and the paths and resources that led them to where they are today. The Veterans Connected podcast is proudly produced by the industry's leading network and learning community, Mobius Connect. Eric, over to you. Hi, I'm Eric Covino, host of the Mobius Connect podcast focused on connecting military veterans to the maintenance and reliability community. My aim here is to bridge the understanding gap between the military and civilian worlds, thereby improving the veteran transition journey and ultimately providing hope and a helping hand to any of our brothers and sisters out there struggling to find their way. We'll do this by interviewing veterans who have successfully made it through. For this session, we've chosen to interview one such Air Force veteran, Carl Schultz, whose fascinating and patriotic story is a must listen for anyone interested in joining us on this mission. Welcome, Carl. It's great to see you again. You've been all right. Thank you. Thank you, my good man. It's a pleasure being here and sharing this time with you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. You've uh, started a new position with a new company. Why don't you start off by telling us uh, what you're doing today? What are you sure. up to today? So uh, the organization that I'm with today is ICI Infrared Cameras Incorporated. They're a Beaumont-based infrared camera manufacturer and uh, build uh, very sensitive um, ultra um, uh, ultra positive, if you will, uh, infrared cameras for anything from industrial handheld use uh, from the predictive maintenance perspective uh, with electrical distribution all the way up to automation, uh, process control within the industrial world, or even uh, scientific and biomedical. Actually, some of our instrumentation is classified as what's known as uh, EMDs or electrical medical devices. So we hold certificates and certifications on the uh, cameras that actually give them the capability of being utilized as uh, medical tools, adjunct uh, diagnostic medical tools as well. Nice, nice. So you're on the um, business development side there. Actually, I'm, I'm. I add to business development, but rather than a pure business development uh, aspect, what I'm involved in directly with the organization is support of the BD and um, RSDs or regional sales directors. They'll go out and locate the opportunities. And then um, I help them design the systems for the applications based on the use cases of those particular systems, what types of cameras they're gonna need, where they get installed, how they get installed, what computer systems they need to talk to. So it's a, it's a support uh, role, if you will, um, with respect to business development, but it is also contributing to sales and making sure that the end user has all of the proper instrumentation and controls with whatever systems they're using. No, that, that sounds very interesting, Carl, and uh, specifically what you're most well suited for. I, I take from that, there's a element of operations like logistical planning and, you know, set up for the customer. So, you know, perhaps some problem solving and a deep understanding of infrared technologies is important in that role most definitely most definitely well good well good that's where you are today and why don't we transition into how did you you know where'd you grow up what's your backstory 
I mean, it doesn't need to be, you know, I, when I was one, I was walking and, you know, sprinting across the living room. But, you know, basically, what, you know, and what got you interested in the military? Where, you know, so kind of the, the, the meat of your mission, if you will, with this podcast is the transition from military to um, how yourself and myself and others within this um community have have moved from that to where we're at so from the respect of the involvement in the military my father was involved in the air force as well and in fact uh ironically i often start my story by i was created in alaska on Anchorage, akron i'm sorry in anchorage alaska um at uh, elmendorf up there and then uh born on lackland air force base in texas so that's kind of, you know, shows you my father's lineage. And that's what got me interested in the Air Force. And I went into the Air Force immediately after um, high school in uh, looking at getting a technical education. And uh, while I was in the service, from that perspective, I was in what is now an inactive Air Force unit, the Tactical Air Command. Um, and I was responsible for um, processing film on the or off of the F-111D swing wing aircraft and more specifically I was trained and responsible for uh, what is known as uh, pre-strike strike and post-strike photography off of those aircraft. So that's that's kind of what got me you know into the military and where I started from was uh, I was I was on Long Island at the time living out uh, uh, in the New England area and just transitioned to the Air Force directly out of high school because I really didn't know what the heck I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I figured technical education was better than no education at all. So took took that route. And that's what I did when I was in the uh, Air Force was that uh, film processing from uh, swing wings. And it was actually kind of cool. I've got a couple of photographs around in the house and in my office of uh, various air bases that I was stationed at at uh, about 40,000 feet at Mach 2 that are just like crystal clear. It's pretty cool stuff. Neat, neat. So uh, surveillance, sort of spy plane imaging, that type of thing. I mean, was infrared at that time involved? Uh, I mean, you were going back it was, ways, right? Yeah. It was a little bit of infrared involved, but not so much. This was high-speed photography and large format photography. So the... Um, Aircraft wings themselves had, if you would, film cans in them. And these film cans were thousands of feet in length and about 14 inches wide. And they would continue to roll while the, while the aircraft flew at extremely high speed. And the reason that the film was that large of a format is because when I first got involved in photography, there was no such thing as digital photography like we have now with DSLRs right. and cell phones. And, you know, it was still all things that your younger listeners may not even understand silver halide and how to actually develop a picture with using chemistry and, you know, stop baths and then printing that film onto, onto actual paper. It was very, very unique, but at any rate, um, your question was high speed and was infrared involved in it. Not really infrared at that time. Infrared was more of a ground-based use at that particular point in time. But that transition from photography that got me involved in thermography is going back to my relationship with my father, which was very close at that particular point in time. 
he had actually started a business. He was working with uh, nuclear accelerator programs at Argonne National Laboratory, Brookhaven, and Stony Brook was the last place that he worked out on Long Island. He had transitioned from that into the private business world and bought a franchise from a, com a company called um, AGA, or HEA, which then became AGEMA. And those that are familiar with uh, infrared can follow that lineage to what is now Teledyne FLIR. They acquired AGEMA. At any rate, when I got out of the service, I had all of this experience in photography, and I enjoyed working in photography. And at the time, took a position with an organization called Photomap which they had three photo processing plants across the country, one in the west, one in the center of the country, and one on the east coast. They were the originators of overnight film processing, where you go drop off a bag of pictures that you just shot from your camera, you'd get it back the next day. My dad started this business, and at the time, they were taking Polaroids off of the back of CRT screens. So a little literal CRT screen, You'd snap a Polaroid of the back of that screen. You'd pull that Polaroid off. You'd let it, you know, um, cure for its 45 seconds and peel it away, and you'd have a picture. My whole presentation to Dad at the time was, hey, I can help you make those look better through the use of 35-millimeter cameras. And that's literally what got me involved in thermography, was helping him take better pictures of those CRTs in his business. And from there, it just it, it snowballed. Fascinating. So, so the technical education that you got in the Air Force helped you transition then out in helping your father's business then at that point? Most definitely. It's what got me involved in Photomat. It's what got me involved in my dad's business. And that, you know, from there continued that professional education all the way to where I'm at today. Interesting. How, how then did you find your way into maintenance from there? There's there's a missing piece of the story that I don't know between what you just told me and working for your dad and the CRTs and 35 sure. millimeter to, I guess, West R Energy is where I know your story kind of picks up in, in my brain. But Right, right. You know, With your I, relationship yeah. and my relationship, we kind of pick up from West Star Energy. So in between there, part of what the business that my dad had was, was a consulting firm that utilized infrared cameras, infrared imaging cameras, to go into facilities and look at the electrical systems, at the building envelopes or the walls or the flat roofs on these buildings. And the infrared cameras have the capability of showing the differences in heat. So from an electrical distribution perspective, where there's resistance in a bad connection, you can pick it up with an infrared camera where there is heat loss or insulation voids within a wall. You can pick those up within the infrared camera as well because of the difference in temperatures in the missing insulation. In a built-up flat roof, you can pick up areas where there's moisture within the roof because you can see the temperature differences in there. So to get to the maintenance piece of it, all of this consulting, if you will, or services that we were providing to facilities we would then produce reports to hand over to their maintenance and reliability and engineering individuals who would then utilize the information and the data that we provided to them in putting together work orders, work requests, and repair orders for the various anomalies or problems that we found throughout their facilities. 
So that's that's how it got into the maintenance world from the respect of my dad's business. And then looking at it from the West Star connection where you and I have came together, I had a couple of companies that had come to me and asked me to actually implement an in-house infrared or thermography program within their organization. And at the time that you and I met at West Star Energy, that is specifically what West Star Energy had hired me to do, was to come in and implement their infrared program, their thermography program from the maintenance and a proactive maintenance practices process throughout their entire fleet of generating stations in Western Kansas. I'm sorry, yeah. Eastern Kansas. Gotcha, gotcha. And the and the tie-in was uh, Stony Brook and Argonne and, you know, what your dad was doing with, with the nuclear facilities there. And then you went over to Coal. And I think Westar had one nuclear facility, if I remember that correctly. They did have one, they did have one nuclear facility. They had uh, Wolf Creek was the, is the name of the uh, new facility that Westar has, um, which, by the way, has now been combined with... Uh, KCP&L, and they go by Evergy, is the current name of the company. At any rate, um, uh, Wolf Creek is their plant. And interestingly, within the nuclear world, really the, the nuclear facilities kind of have their own predictive maintenance processes and programs within the own, their own facilities because of by the nature of what they are producing as far as a product goes, nuclear energy, right, electricity out the other end. Typically speaking, tools that check into those facilities don't often check out. So from that perspective, a lot of what they do is in-house. So I didn't have much interaction with Wolf Creek, but I handled the entire rest of the coal fire, gas fire, and what are called uh, 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 CTs, combustion turbines that use natural gas. Um, I handled all of the implementations with those, with the rest of that fleet. Fantastic. Yeah, a few Navy veterans probably in that Wolf Creek uh, location. I suspect it's a interesting place, an interesting place for, for uh, new power people from the Navy to migrate into the civilian world as well. So um, just quickly back to your, your dad's experience in the Air Force and your experience in the Air Force. I mean, what sort of I mean, did you did you learn most of your leadership from from your dad? Did he learn in the Air Force? Did you get reinforced in the Air Force? I mean, what, where did you get your sort of leadership style and, and ability to kind of bring people together and get them, you know, marshaled in the right direction? I would say from that perspective, it was predominantly a combination of all of the above, Barrett, quite honestly, um, in that, you know, my, my father had his leadership style, of course, which was a different generation than, than we are. So there's that leadership style that is maybe a little more aggressive than our leadership style might be. Sure. Going into the military, all of us who have that experience know that the beginnings of your military experience are very similar to what our generational differences in parents are. Take all of that from a leadership perspective and what we learn from that in being able to mentor and approach the individuals that we do to be able to create a team around us. I would say it was a combination of all of that and the continuation of knowing that I had a good foundation to work with and then being afforded the opportunities after my military life in things such as Dale Carnegie training, 
uh, Miller Hyman trainings, things along those lines that I could then bring into my own educational uh, capabilities and understandings to be able to utilize these tools as leadership tools with individuals that I've worked with as I continued in my career. Very good, very good. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and certainly the um, the Miller Hyman and what was the other one that you mentioned there? Uh, Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, right? Yeah, Dale good. Carnegie is very unique in that it is uh, really tailored toward human relations and public speaking. So it you know it gives you or it provides you an opportunity to learn the skills to be able to speak to people in a manner in which you and I are doing, where we haven't maybe spoken to each other in a number of months, a number of years, yet be able to pick up a conversation or be able to develop a skill set by which you can present to individuals you may not even know. Very good. Yeah, that's good uh, advice and something for people to look at if they haven't ever seen it or heard of Dale Carnegie before in the, the Miller-Hyman process is something I'm familiar with too. I think we went mm -hmm. through some of that training together when we worked together. And uh, I think that's that's good to sort of line things out and, you know, really matches some of the experience that we get in the service as far as operational planning and, you know, setting exactly. things up for, for success. So good. So I'm taking from this, Carl, that your transition from the military into the civilian life may have been a little smoother than perhaps somebody coming out with kind of not really an idea where they fit within the civilian world. So you, so you, really, I think the lesson here or, or maybe the takeaway is that certainly your family is could be supportive of you coming out of the military like your dad's business right and and right. learn from so that's a good off-ramp uh, what it was for you definitely a good off-ramp but i would also say when i came out of the service because of the skill set that i had when i came out of the service which if you look at it from a civilian perspective was photo finishing right how to take pictures how to make pictures and how to create pictures so it was very niche oriented at that particular point in time so really my transition into photomat and i'll just bring that up again a little bit had to do with persistence i knew that i was very good at being able to do that i knew that there were only select companies around the country photomat being one of the biggest ones and they happened to be had one plant located in my backyard but if you go back and think about what photography used to be there were also local camera shops and places along those lines where i could have gotten a position as well but I would say that understanding what my skill set was and springboarding off of that by being able to locate one of the largest photo finishing organizations in the country and being very, very persistent with the HR and the uh, communication process. Eric, quite frankly, literally, I almost camped on their front door until they hired me. I mean, really, I just because I knew I didn't have a select, you know, it wasn't like I could go out and say, from a maintenance perspective, and I know we want, we're looking at this from that maintenance skew, and it's that photo finishing that took me into that, quite frankly, because it got me involved in thermography. But coming out of the service, the realization of what my skill set was that I had, and knowing that whatever I did in the rest of my life, I needed to use this skill set to start that baseline with. No, that's, 
Great, Carl. So, I mean, really it speaks to, regardless of, regardless of its photo finishing, which is not prevalent today, or, you know, some more modern skill set, I think the methodology is the same, right? Finding, exactly. yep. finding the companies that do it best, I mean, that makes the translation easier on the skill set without a doubt. But let me ask you this, why why did you have to be so persistent, like basically camping on their door? Was the competition really tough or was it uh, difficulty in translation, translating the military job to the civilian job or like what was it there? So quite frankly, at that point in my life, I was maybe not as, um, professional as I am at this particular point in my life. And okay. I was I have all of us. Yeah. I would say quite frankly, I was younger and not nearly as intelligent in my approaches as I am now. And that was part of that persistence is that initially their view of me as an individual didn't match what my skill set capabilities were. Once I got on board with the with the company and they realized that the skill set that I had was more than adequate for what they needed. The rest of what I looked like, what I accidentally said, you know, right, right, right. It, it went away. But initially, in just looking at an HR director with a, a beard and maybe some longer hair because it got out of the service when I got out of the service and it was, you know, I think you understand what I'm saying. I was a little more rebellious at that particular point in time. Therefore, I was less accepted from a visual perspective. So I had to be persistent with, okay, I don't want to change who I am, but I need you to understand that I'm very, very good at what I do. Yeah, long-haired, freaky people need not apply, right? Bingo. So I tuck my hair up under my hat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, well, and and I mean, you can you can fast forward from them to today, and you got the same sort of challenges, right? I mean, stereotypes. Um, I mean, I grew my hair when I got out of the navy. I got facial hair now. I mean, regardless of your situation, you you got tat sleeve tattoos, whatever. I mean, it can be off putting, right? I mean, not only exactly. the people who don't understand the military very well may think everybody that comes out of the military is a trained assassin or, you know, ready to slice somebody's throat at a moment's notice or, or you know, PTSD or shell shock or what, whatever exactly. you, you want to call it. So, exactly. so there are some stereotypes to break down and persistence can, can do that. I think in, in today's world, um, persistence is obviously very professional persistence is obviously still, still good and, and shows uh, a commitment to help break down some of those stereotypes because they don't know you until they know you exactly and, and once you know you just need to give get them get in there get the chance and once they know the you they start to love you and like what you're able to do and and appreciate the the leadership and the skill set that you bring to the table so that's that you know i just i i thought i might want to poke in there a little bit just to just to figure sure. out because there's, there's all kinds of things that could happen between the time you're finished in the service and the time you're starting in your civilian career or whatever that happens to be that um, that may slow you down or hold you up or exactly or exactly and I think a lot of us who have transitioned from military to civilian life you know that that little 
failures period is not uncommon when we first transition from the service to the civilian life because there is a significant amount of regimented daily life within the military that is not on the outside. So naturally, as human beings, we go, okay, cool, I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> right. Right. So you decide you work full circle and you're like, well, maybe some of those things were actually good. For me. <laughs> well, Keep in ironically, habit, yeah. ironically, I know that um, uh, maybe we're not on video here, but the reason that I wear my hair as short as I do now is because I came to that exact realization myself oh. in that the ponytail you know, I always wore it in a ponytail. Why? Because it looked better off of my face. So why keep the hair to begin with? Funny. Yeah, it's all, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So uh, anything that you particularly enjoyed about your time in the service that you miss now or maybe you missed most, like right during the, the transition? Certainly, from my perspective, I would say that the travel was very enjoyable, but I've been very, very fortunate in my career, and it's involved a great deal of travel uh, continuing from there. So I, I missed it, not knowing, you know, at that initial transition, starting up in my career again, you know, reflecting back on Photomat, where I was at locally, there was no travel with that type of an aspect, and that, that has blossomed since then, and I've been very, very fortunate with that. Um, you know, looking back on it throughout my entire life, I, I would also say it's it's odd, but that regimented uh, lifestyle that, that I referred to just a few minutes ago that, you know, we tend to rebel against, as I have mellowed with age, I've looked back at and said, you know, there, there's really a great deal of good to be said for that as well whether it's boundaries, whether it's understanding of what the envelopes are, whatever the case may be, there's there's a great deal of gold in there that we don't necessarily realize when we're stuck in the throes of it. You know, especially during COVID, right? I mean, there's so few things in, in life that you can, can control, but you can control your your schedule and and your routine and you know to a degree right so right. Uh, provide some some comfort and some stability and uh and some direction and momentum with uh with life so i think that's yeah. you know these are great commentary and and especially both i think are really important uh, that the travel thing i think what's happening today or at least from what i hear and what i see a little bit i mean people can work out of their house so they don't have to travel as much but people who enjoy traveling and want either national responsibility or regional hemispherical responsibility or even global responsibility i think that's something that service members have been used to perhaps i mean you grew up in in a service-oriented family so you moved a couple times in, in your early life and then uh, got to see more of the world, some cool places and all that. And, you know, I certainly feel very thankful for not only seeing Norfolk, Virginia, but also the Panama Canal, uh, Cuba, mm -hmm. Italy, Japan, Southeast Asia, other places around the world that I may not have ever seen before without being part of the service. So exactly. And, and being comfortable in that and being, you know, sort of the mindset of being an ambassador, not only for your country, but for your company, you know, when you're representing yourself, 
your employer, the cultural differences between the, the companies, the countries and everything else right, is, right. is something that not, not everybody uh, is taught or shown or appreciates when they, when they move around the world. So, so Carl, let me ask you this. Uh, what advice would you give to any service member planning to transition to the civilian world that you wish you had when you made that move? My advice would be to remember and realize that no matter how hard it is to knock on that door, knock on the door and say hello. And then also to realize that a no is not really a no. It's a reason to either one, go knock on another door or ask another question. Because if the answer is no, then there's, there's, there's a reason. So to uncover that reason. And, you know, they don't teach us when we come out that particular skill set to, to be able to say, okay, there's another door down the hall. I'll go knock on that one. Or no isn't really no. It just means that there's something else. You know, more often than not, unless you have transitioned out of military life, and it, I would, I would even venture to say that if you've transitioned out of military life from from a retirement perspective and then gone into a second career, you may even find it harder to knock on that next door because you're so unaccustomed to having to do it. Whereas my military career was not as extensive as somebody who sought second uh, second employment after the military. I did my initial stint and got out and, and went on into uh, civilian life and, and our maintenance and reliability world from there. So I was younger and, and overcame that fear, if you will, of knocking on doors earlier than maybe some of our folks who have been, you know, eight years, 10 years, 30 years and, and ready to go. So my advice would be don't take no for no. And don't forget that, you know, there's another door down the hall if that one really is closed. I think that's great advice. But, you know, a similar thing that I've heard is no doesn't always mean no, but it just could mean not now. Right. And, you know, if you come back in the same same job, I mean, being curious, like you said, ask, well, why not? I mean, it's not against the law to ask why not i mean <laughs> exactly cer certainly express your right to have uh, mental curiosity and freedom and use the use the courage that you had in the military right the, so that courage doesn't extend to looking for a job and so it should right it should you it know? definitely yeah. should it definitely should and something you know along those lines that my father taught me that i have since taught my entire family is that the answer to a question never asked is always no <laughs> so don't ever be afraid to ask the question because if you don't ask it the answer is no if you ask it you may find that it's a whole different answer than no and it may be the entire opposite and something completely unexpected than what you thought it might be. <laughs> right. It generally is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, unless you're a mind reader. And uh, I haven't, at least the military has changed since I've been in. They don't teach mind reading in, in the service. 
No, I don't think that's a skill set that they're willing to assume. <laughs> no, that's that's good, Carl. Great, great advice. Thank you. And then the next question uh, I have on my list of questions here for you is what guidance can you share with corporate hiring managers about veterans that they need to know to get the best military fits for the position they're seeking? For hiring managers? Yeah, for hiring managers. Like, if you were, and you may be in this position now where you're hiring people and, you know, if your peers came to you or even HR and said, well, you know, we, we've got some military veteran candidates, how, how, what should we do with them or how should we treat them or, or whatever? Besides saying, yeah, go ahead and hire them without even, you know, talking to them. They're good guys or girls or whatever. Um, you know, what, what advice would you have? have I guess my, my first piece of advice would be that there, any military veteran is no different than anybody who is in current civilian life outside of the fact that their education stems from a different educational conduit than college or tech school or something along those lines. They may have had college, they may have had tech school, but they've also got that military bearing and that military background. So it's a different conduit. So don't treat them any differently just because they have a different educational conduit than somebody who may be white collar, blue collar, whatever the, the, the case may be. And then also to realize that Predominantly, you're going to find, at least this has been my experience, Eric, you're going to find almost 180 degree opposite with vets as far as when they are transitioning. Either they are very, very quiet and you're going to have to ask numerous questions to get them to open up to talk to you about whatever their skill set is or their life or anything, whatever the case may be. Or they're going to be very, very talkative and they're going to want to give you their entire story. So from the perspective of advice to a hiring manager, understand that those are the two extremes that you're likely to encounter and be willing to deal with those opposite extremes when you're interviewing or conversing with individuals that are transitioning into civilian life. Allow them to discuss who they are, what they are, where they come from, and why they have the skill set that they have, or if they seem uncomfortable and unfamiliar with the surroundings, do not be afraid to ask probing questions to bring that type of information out of them. Not to put them off, you know, to, to off-put them or anything along those lines, but to help them to open up to be able to discuss who they are and how they came up with that skill set. Fascinating, Carl. I mean, it's a great answer, right? So would you attribute, and you said this, but uh, would you attribute that sort of just really can't slow down, just gonna talk, 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 or don't open up to being nervous in their surroundings, you know, new unfamiliar territory and all that type of 100, stuff. 100%, yeah. there's there's the element of, of nervousness, concern, of being accepted because so many, even, and maybe especially now today, but certainly during conflict times, you know, that transition from military life to civilian life, you come out of the military after a conflict. And there's, again, not only do we have communication skills that are one extreme or the other from being a vet, but you also have that aspect of being viewed as one extreme or another because you are a vet. 
Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's the fear factor that's involved in it, whether it's, you know, peacetime or wartime. And there's also the, the, the <laughs> I always think back through my military career of almost a par- parental type of uh, uh, being dealt with. And, the, you know, don't speak unless spoken to, you know, very, very regimented upbringing and um, time that that you have, especially in your early portion of your military career. And it takes a long time to transition out of that type of a mindset into one where you realize all of a sudden that you actually do have the freedom to converse with an individual mano a mano like you and I are doing right now. So I think that it's, it's a twofold thing. I think it's fear factor and I think it's just, you know, okay, I'm not accustomed to speaking to somebody of what my mind is, or I'm now in a position where I'm just going to say anything that comes out of my mouth because I don't know how to really converse with somebody other than giving them everything at one time. Yeah, it's 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 really an interesting psychological thing that needs to be considered, right? Because, I mean, you're talking about young kids, right? 18, 19, 20 years old, or they yeah. go in at 18, they come out at 22, and they're, you know, battle hardened, tested in combat. They're they're brave enough to go into a firefight, go into patrol with IEDs and the great unknown, and they're with yeah. their brothers and everything like that. But going into an inner panel interview in corporate America is a uh, it's scary, right? Because it's out of out of place, out of time, not really what they're used to. So giving them a, a break, and I think I think the most fragile piece of this puzzle which all relates to transition difficulties leading to uh, being disenfranchised or cast adrift to go into booze or drugs or whatever and then homelessness and suicide I, I think it's the one tour folks whether they're officers or enlisted you know it's a short period of time it's you've been made into a military person and now you're you know, you're transitioning sort of back into the civilian world. It's also hard for people who have been in the military for 20, 25, 30 year careers too. But there are perhaps better programs, I suspect. I'm not a total expert at this, but from what I've heard and what I've seen, the folks that have been in for a longer period of time have specific transitional uh, help, at least in from what I understand, the special operations community, and I wasn't a special operator, I was a diver, but I'm, you know, guilt by association is EOD sure. and then all that in, in the Navy. So I have some friends who are EOD and SEALs too, but yeah, so so I think that's great advice. And I think that's a really interesting counsel that we haven't had yet on this podcast. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's it's interesting that we're talking about this psychological component. I actually have a nephew who is uh, special ops in the Marines and has been for, I think, the last 17 years. Um, and uh, quite frankly, when when I am around him, because of going back to what you were just saying right now, you're you're trained as a military operator, and as you know and others know when talking about special ops from marines their training is even more niche or more specific than anybody else's quite frankly and when he's out and about 
He is very introverted. Totally, 100% introverted, even around family and friends. So in, when you talk about that psychological impact and then take that young man who will eventually transition to civilian life, whether he wants to or not, he will eventually transition to civilian life. You know, at this point in his life, I know he has no desire to. He's very happy doing what he's doing. He'll, he'll go on his missions. Nobody knows what he does. He comes home. Yeah. You understand the program of special ops, especially from the Marine side. And, you know, he will eventually need to transition into civilian life. And I'd imagine that there's going to, it, I know that the military has gotten better at that transition counseling, but I think it's twofold. I think we on the civilian side need to be more cognizant of that transition. And I think that the military needs to provide better programs especially with individuals such as my nephew when they're getting ready to transition out as well could be a pretty pretty dramatic change especially if he goes from being a marine raider to an accountant or not not that there not that there aren't a lot of very tough and and <laughs> skilled accountants out there but uh yeah and and i think i think there's a tendency to find some adjacencies either in support of the defense department or CIA or whatever. And sometimes that works and that's great. That's great. Sure. But, but sometimes it doesn't. And, and I think your point is very valid. There's a tremendous amount of support out there, but it's very fragmented and not right. entirely focused. So, so People such as yourself, you are you are on this mission at this point in your life to help these individuals transition by what you're doing. But this is a it's 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 a mission that's fragmented from a process that could be a better vehicle. That's I think exactly what you're getting at. You're right. Perhaps bundled and focused it would would make it easier and more accessible in a more timely pointed fashion for somebody, hey, somebody coming out of the Navy who's who's been in maintenance or the Air Force, you know, jet maintenance, engines, all that type of stuff, right? Says, okay, well, maintenance and reliability. I hear Carl Schultz talking to Eric and it's infrared. Oh, okay. I never thought about infrared before. Let me, you know, check it out a little bit. I use you know, infrared camera doing whatever, you know, I, right. I, I look for, for deer on my property at night when I'm not hunting because may not be, you know, copacetic to hunt with infrared, but, you know, <laughs> certainly in Texas, you can hunt from infrared from a helicopter and, you know, whatever weapons you happen to have or have built to, you know, rid, yep. rid the, the countryside of, you know, whatever sort of animals uh, they don't want there. But uh, in any case, all right, well, good, good. And so, Carl, is there anything we didn't cover today on this uh, brief conversation that you'd like to relate to listeners, either vets or those looking to connect with them? I actually think we've done a really good job of covering a number of topics here. I, I would I would just I'd kind of go back to one thing that I said to you, what you're, what you're doing and what your mission is here. It's very commendable. I appreciate you taking the opportunity to spend some time with me today in, in you know, what my history is and how my transition took place and, and what it has been enabled me to do. So I just, I wanted to say thank you. 
And I truly, truly do commend you for your cause and, and your mission here. I think it's outstanding. Well, I appreciate it, Carl. I mean, we've known each other for a while and we've always, I think if we haven't been on the same page, we've been able to, you know, certainly either get on the same page or respect each other for our differences along the way. And it's been uh, a great pleasure to to know you along the way and your family. And, um, and I, I truly appreciate it here too. So thanks for the time. Uh, it's, it's great to see you again. It's great to hear more about your story. And these are pieces that I didn't know <laughs> before. So, <laughs> so now I know more of the, the complete book of Carl and uh, you know, when I'm down. I suspect down through this venue, there's many people that are going to know a lot more about Carl than they knew before. <laughs> right. And if they want to reach out to you, uh, where, where can they find you? After if they hear on the podcast, where could they find you? They can find me at the end of my cell phone, which you have access to. I don't know if you publish those on your, your podcast. I won't necessarily right. say it out. Social media, or I mean, are you on LinkedIn? I'm, on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. Anybody can find me on LinkedIn. Again, the company's Infrared Cameras Inc. ICI. Uh, I'm a director within their organization. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn, and literally, that's got my contact information on it as well, both private and uh, business-wise. Fantastic, fantastic. So, for all you listeners out there, if you want to talk to Carl about infrared or Air Force or his transition, then. Knock, hit him up on uh, knock knock. Hit him up on LinkedIn, and and he'll help you out. That's so thank you. Yep. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, Carl. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. And thanks to Mobius for providing this platform to help both transitioning vets as well as those looking to hire them in the field of maintenance and reliability. All right, that's all from Lexington, Kentucky, and Florida. Vino out. We're done. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Veterans Connected. We will see you back for another episode very soon. In between, we hope to see you in the Veterans Connected community group where you can meet Eric and fellow podcast guests and share with other industry veterans at MobiusConnect.com. And we hope to see you there.